2: You know, Greg, it's an overlooked job, but behind most great albums is a great producer. This week, we talk to one of the best, Stephen Street, producer of landmark releases by The Smiths, Morrissey, and Blur. I'm Jim Dirigatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cut of the Chicago Tribune. We'll also review the
1: latest from electropop artist M.I.A., and Jim adds one of his favorite songs to the Desert Island
2: jukebox. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news.
1: That is the song, Did You Steal My Money, by The Who, from the early 80s. And that is a song that the record industry has been singing for the last decade, Jim, as we well know. We've been documenting the efforts of the recording industry to suppress peer-to-peer file sharing. question is, how well are these efforts working? Very highly publicized campaign by the Recording Industry Association of America to sue file sharers that it deems in violation of copyright law. They have spent, according to tax documents from 2006 through 2008, $58 million in lawyer fees attempting to go after people who are committing illegal file sharing online. The results of all this, how many fines have they collected from people who have admitted, yes, I am illegally file sharing? A $1.3 million haul. That means they're getting about a 2% return. On those lawyer fees for, 58 million yes. to make 1.2 million <laughs> exactly not only that illegal file sharing has actually increased since this campaign went into effect for every legal file that is bought online 40 are traded quote-unquote illegally let's go to france and see how their law is working over there the government in fact has been involved with the recording industry they're trying to suppress file sharing Sarkozy the president has been behind a law that says basically if you are caught illegally sharing files three times on the internet your internet service provider can basically cut you off from access to the net really draconian measure it was finally passed earlier this year how many times has the government implemented this policy so far not a single warning has been sent out and not a single broadband connection has been cut so it seems like there's been more bark than bite in france's law and admittedly a lot of french officials are now having second thoughts about whether this is going too far so we see
2: these officially sanctioned efforts to suppress file sharing they're not working so good what if the record industry had taken that 58 million <laughs> and used it to pay back royalties to the many artists there you going go. back to robert johnson who never got them exactly <laughs> That is India Song by Big Star. Greg, a couple of deaths to talk about in the news this week. It's sad. We've been uh, covering a lot of deaths from the Big mm-hmm. Star camp. It was only in March when we talked about the death of Alex Chilton, the best-known frontman of that legendary power pop group down at South by Southwest in Texas when the news broke. There had been a panel discussion set where Andy Hummel, the bassist for Big Star, was going to reunite with Alex Chilton on the dais for the first time in years. They were Mm -hmm. both going to talk about the legacy of this band. Hummel was there, as was Jody Stevens, the drummer, who we had on the show last year, but Chilton wasn't. He died, and now at age 59... Andy Hummel is dead as well. Important contributions to that band. We've talked a lot about Big Star, so I want to focus on another death that is probably a little less known, but it should be, this is a name that should be celebrated by fans of adventurous rock and roll. Because Thule Kupferberg, Mm. co-founder of the legendary Fugs, arguably laid the groundwork not only for the freak folk movement that has been so popular in recent years, but for the punk rock attitude. This guy was a character, Greg. He was of the previous generation. He was of the beatnik generation. He had started a magazine that published the likes of Allen Ginsberg and Deanne De Prima, Leroy Jones. He was a great poet, uh, prolific throughout his 86 years. He was despondent once and uh, tried to commit suicide jumping off the Manhattan Bridge. Hmm. But he landed in the water. He was fine. He swam ashore. And he was legendary in the New York beatnik circles as the man who survived jumping off the bridge. With Ed Sanders, who was also a poet and the owner of the Peace Eye Bookstore, they put together this ramshackle collaborative group with people like Bruce Weber and Peter Stamfel, guys who would go on to be part of the Holy Modal Rounders. They were part of that Greenwich Village scene that was scarier, grungier, druggier, and more versed in weird sex things (laughs) than the nicer Greenwich Village scene of Bob Dylan. You know, Dylan, I think, would have run across the street when he saw the fugs coming, named for the euphemism from uh, Norman Mailer's books. The Fugs were the band that played when Norman Mailer tried to have the exorcism of the Pentagon <laughs> at the height of the Vietnam War. Lester Bangs called them the godfathers of punk because of both their subject matter and their insane sound. To pay homage to Thule Kupferberg, who had been ailing and recently died at age 86, here is one of his songs. Thule grew up in a Jewish household, and a lot of the songs he brought to the Fugs were delivered in the style of the Kaddish. And you can just picture him like a rabbi davening as he delivered these tunes, except the lyrics were a little bit different. His best-known song was CIA Man, and it recently was on the soundtrack of Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers movie. Mm -hmm. But that has so many nasty words, we can't play it. Instead, I want to play Nothing, which is an ode to nihilism of the highest order. Here are the Fugs and Thule Kupferberg on Sound Opinions. (laughs) you <laughs>
3: A little more nothing, Friday once more nothing. A one garnish, a theme stick, stick, garnish, bit of old stick, garnished. Friday, fall and open garnished, giggle ash, all garnished. Alone is not a market.
1: That is nothing by the Fugs in tribute to the late, great Thule Kupferberg on Sound Opinions.
2: Listening to Sound Opinions, and that is How Soon Is Now, the classic track from the Smiths' 1985 release, Meat Is Murder. It was recorded by our guest this week, Stephen Street. The British record producer and engineer worked on three of the Smiths' finest albums during the 1980s, as well as singer Morrissey's subsequent solo records. In the 90s, he produced a number of albums for the band Blur, including Park Life and Modern Life Is Rubbish, as well as the usually successful debut by the Cranberries. Street continues to record bands like the Kaiser Chiefs and Baby Shambles today, and he joins us now to talk a little bit about making some of these albums. Stephen, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi there. Stephen, let's start with how you began as an engineer and producer. Well,
4: um, I initially started off as a, a musician, kind of a, well, a struggling musician in, in a band at the uh, tail end of the 1970s. And in that kind of initial post-punk period, there were quite a few... New producers coming through that are working with the kind of punk and new wave bands that were from the engineering side of things. I'm particularly thinking of here people like Steve Lillywhite, Martin Rushant, Martin Hannett. Sure. Much more kind of touching into studio technique rather than just, you know, bang, bang, bang. And obviously, these new young engineers were becoming this new breed of producer so i decided that the, the way forward for myself because i enjoyed being in the studio when i had the, those rare chances with the band that i was in was to perhaps kind of quit being a musician for a while and learn how to use the recording desk and then hopefully from there progress into record production but uh just luck of the draw really by word of mouth i heard of a job going at island records and island records had a basement studio below the actual company itself I kind of phoned up and said, look, I've heard that you've got a job going uh, for a new assistant at the moment. Can I come in and have a meeting or chat with you? And the studio manager at the time said, yeah, fine, come in, you know, like um, next week. I said, well, actually, I could possibly come in today. I've got some time. And and she said, oh, fine, if you want to. So I went along and I must have impressed them because they managed to, uh, they offered me the
2: job. And I imagine at that time the studio was a magical place to you. I mean, I think it's been a little demystified now that everybody has Garage Band on their uh, Oh, absolutely. Computer. It's uh, demystified everything, yeah. But back then in Island in the 80s, you had to have been like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what I love about it is that at the start of the day, there's
4: this blank piece of tape. And then there's these musicians and then you put up these microphones and things around them and and you record it and then you balance it and then it goes onto this tape and then at the end of the day there's a recording. It exists, you know, it's something that can never be taken away. And unfortunately, as you said, you know, everything has been demystified now because people are used to just plugging into their computers now and recording themselves and dragging down loops and samples from God knows where and making it all sound like it's so easy. But back then, you know, to make a half-decent selling record, you had to work at it.
1: And you said as an engineer getting into this field, you were attracted to the work that uh, people like Lily White and Russian were doing, Martin Hannett. I take it from that that you were kind of interested in using the studio as more of an instrument rather than just as a place to record bands in real time.
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. I mean, obviously at the time, this is the beginning of the 80s and people were treating drum sounds, for instance, in a very different way. And yeah, you're right, exactly. I was, it, it, that was the thing I wanted to do was to learn how to use the recording desk so that I could then learn how to kind of treat the studio as, as this kind of wonderful way of putting colour and depth into the sound.
1: Now the story goes that one of your very first gigs as an engineer was working on the, one of the Smiths' first singles.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, by this stage I'd kind of progressed to being one of the uh, well, one of the younger in-house engineers at Act Island. Island Records at the time had just bought a brand new uh, SSL desk which they had put into this basement studio and they were keen to fund that. They were keen to kind of get some outside clients in. So there was a weekend session that was free and my studio manager phoned me and said, look, we've got a session coming in at the weekend. It's a band called The Smiths. Would you be prepared to engineer it? And I was like, "Hell yeah, absolutely!" Because I'd seen them, literally uh, only a few weeks previously on a program we used to have over here called Top of the Pops, performing "This Charming Man," and there was a general buzz building up about them. And I really loved them, so I was like, "Yeah, yeah, definitely." So it was a case of being in the right place at the right time, you know. Well, you know, I did the session with them. They came in with John Porter, who was still producing them, and we recorded what became Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now.
1: That's a pretty amazing gig <laughs>
4: It was It was and I'm, and I'm very grateful That I had the opportunity And the chance
3: I was happy in the haze Of a drunken hour But heaven knows I'm miserable now I was looking for a job And then I found a job And heaven knows
2: Was the sound there in the room, Stephen? Uh, you know, because we look back at those Smiths records now. The sound is so massive, and they've inspired so many different people in so many different directions, have taken things from those recordings. And I think people outside the industry are always kind of confused. Well, how much is the producer and the engineer, and how much is that band would have sounded that way if we were recording them on a mono cassette player?
4: Well, I mean, obviously Johnny's playing was particularly beautiful, but the main thing was, I think, was Morrissey's vocal performance as long as you had a half-decent mic and you kind of put the right kind of reverb on him or whatever, it would sound pretty damn good, you know. You wouldn't need to kind of slave over it with auto-tune and all that kind of thing to make (laughs) it sound decent. This pretty much was the sound of a band playing, though, in a decent room and balanced well. To make sure you gave Johnny some nice kind of effects on his guitar, some delay, some chorus here and there and so on and so forth, and you pretty much got the sound.
3: Asked of me at the end of the day, Caligula would have blushed. Oh, you've been in the house too long, she said, and I naturally fled.
1: In a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we're going to continue talking to record producer Stephen Street about his work with the Smiths and other great British bands. And later on, Jim's going to add a track he can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you're listening to a bit of I Started Something I Couldn't Finish from the Smiths' final album, Strange Ways, Here We Come. Jim and I have been talking to the man who produced that album, Stephen Street. Street worked extensively with the Smiths in the 80s, and later with Smiths singer Morrissey on his solo records, as well as five of Blur's albums. Stephen, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your relationship with the Smiths. You know, we all know that being a producer is much more than just getting sounds on tape. Sometimes you've got to be like a therapist almost. Uh, did your role blur into navigating the relationship between Morrissey and the guitar player, Johnny Marr? And how did the Smiths actually get along?
4: Well, they they gone along fine. I mean, obviously for me, when I first started working with them, as I said before, I was an engineer and John Porter produced that initial session and then we did Meet His Murder and the band didn't want to work with the producer. They wanted to work with an engineer that they trusted. So obviously I was brought in as a kind of confidant. In a technical kind of way with them then and then it naturally can progress to me becoming a co-producer with them and so on obviously you would want to work earlier in the day than Johnny and so on and so forth so I'd always make sure that I was around and about to be there, to be used by them whenever they wanted yeah and bit by bit I did feel that I deserved the credit of being you know a kind of co-producer alongside them but it was a good learning curve for me and obviously it reflects even more in the sense that when they did sadly split up that Morrissey chose to carry on working with myself
3: Park the car the road
1: You came along with Meat is Murder as, as the first full-length that you worked on with them. At that point, what did you feel you could bring to the table? I mean, was it just a case, oh, you know, I'm so happy to be in the studio with this amazing band, and, you know, I'm just here to record them? Or did you feel like, hey, you know, I'm, I've listened to your music. Are there any ideas you sort of brought to the table at that point when you, when you started working with the band full-time?
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the main thing was when they were kind of running through a song idea, I would be kind of shifting through all the different kind of reverbs and kind of room sounds I could find, you know, uh, using different reverb units to see what would work best on the snare and, and generally on the kit, but predominantly on the snare at that point. And so that when they came back in after playing in the playing area as it were they would come back in and hear it played through the desk and actually hear hopefully something that would inspire them you know and that would help take them in a certain direction with the song and back then I used to print the reverb that was for that song onto a couple of tracks and make a note of it so that if I needed those tracks later on you know for further overdubs I could recreate it on the mix but it gave us a sense of flavor and taste for the sound for that song while we were tracking on it. I and mean, then with Johnny, I would always have two different delay times set up, different kind of um, times that suit the tempo of the song. So again, with him, when he was playing, if he needed something to bounce off of, I could give him a delay or, or a particularly nice kind of reverb or whatever. So I was trying to bring sonic kind of touches and colors that could be there at a fingertips touch to help keep the session rolling along.
1: Were there any specific songs where you felt like it changed radically from where they brought the song in to... Where it became something quite a bit different because of those kind of touches in the studio
4: well meters' murder for instance, I mean that was just like a little kind of piano motif that Johnny had, had and they'd been kind of jamming out slightly as a bass drum and guitar outfit in rehearsals, uh, sound checks and things, but it didn't have the sonic qualities that we had built up with the backwards piano drones and the animal noises and things. I was very proud of that because Morrissey came to me and said, I've got this BBC sound effects record. Uh, it's got some cows and <laughs> things. Like you know, can you make it sound like an abattoir? <laughs> the Queen is Dead. Same thing there really, you know, then 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 that was a song that they hadn't really, as far as I know, played live at all before we did it in the studio. And with that, I just felt that we needed to approach the drums in a slightly different way to make it more interesting. So, there was a very, very basic sampler which I think gave me about one and a half seconds of sampling time. And we sampled Mike playing the rolling drum pattern that you hear at the very beginning of the song.
2: talking with record producer Stephen Street on Sound Opinions. Stephen, the Smiths break up in 1987 and Morrissey goes out on his own. Now, as you mentioned earlier, he continues to work with you, and this time you're tapped as a songwriter as well, right? Yeah, well, basically what happened, the Smiths, I mean, broke up, and I really thought,
4: like most people, it was a, it was a bit of a tiff and that they would be back together again within six months. But in in the meantime, when Johnny first left, the Smiths tried to do a session with another guitar player from from Manchester, and I was asked to come in and engineer this session they did over a weekend, and it was one of the most demoralising things I've ever been involved in. It was so obvious it wasn't going to work, and we did a session on the Saturday, and I was due to go back in on the Sunday morning. And Andy rocked the bass player for me and said, "Oh, don't bother, uh, Morris. He's gone home back to Manchester. Uh, you know, it's 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 nothing's happening. So just." You know, stand by your bed, as it were. You know, there's there's not much going on. I basically, at this point, had some four-track cassette recordings that I'd made up of some certain, just song ideas and bits and pieces that I'd had over the years. And I thought, well... What the hell? You know, I'll, I'll send it to Morrissey because I knew this is how Johnny used to work with him. He used to send him kind of like a backlog of song ideas that Morrissey would then kind of listen to and, and see if anything inspired him. Mm. And the way you would do it, you would have to make up a, a backing track as if it was in a certain tempo and style and so on. And I sent him off a collection of, I think I've no more than six or seven songs with a little note saying oh, you know, forgive me for being a little bit presumptuous but if you feel anything is of use here for a Smith's B-side please let me know I got married that year and I came back from a short honeymoon and there was a note from Morrissey saying uh, Stephen I love the, the, the songs you sent me I want to make a solo record would you be interested in working with me
1: wow so you're, you're the one it. responsible for his solo career <laughs>
4: We booked a session in the studio that year and we elected to do two or three songs in that first week or so, and uh, one of which was Suedehead.
3: Why do you-
4: Obvious then that hold on, we're to something here.
1: That's a pretty amazing story. How did it feel? Did you feel daunted at all by essentially taking the place of Johnny Marr in the Morrissey's life?
4: <laughs> absolutely, I was absolutely petrified by it because I just knew if it failed, I'd be the one that'd be given a huge amount of blame for it. And in fact, when I finished the record with Morrissey at Grandma around about Christmas time, he kind of basically went kind of incommunicado in with me for a good couple of months or so. So I thought, oh, you know, this is it. He's decided that he doesn't like it. And then Suedehead kind of got a, uh, kind of got pressed up and went out to radio, and people just loved him. And uh, I remember particularly because my son, my first son was born the day that it charted in the charts, uh, mm. and I kind of rushed home back from the hospital and I went back to listen to the Radio 1 BBC 1 chart. So for me, it was like, you know, this is a top 10 hit record, you know, and mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away.
2: Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. So, Stephen, let's move on to your relationship with Blur. Greg and I are both huge Blur fans, and we followed the careers of uh, Damon Albarn and Graham Coxon from the beginning. I think we were uh, half of the U.S. audience that did appreciate Blur early on. But this... <laughs> <Great. the> st- <laughs> <laughs> oh, waiting for them to take over the U.S., yeah. but that Nirvana band got in the way, and then those Oasis yeah, fellas. Yeah. All right, so the story goes, you hear the single She's So High, and you seek them out to work with them.
4: I'd heard it on the radio, but then the main thing that made me kind of think wow this is really good I saw there was a there was a program on, on BBC on Sunday afternoon which was uh, a, some kind of jukebox jury type thing where they played a video and so on and so forth and I saw these guys and I heard the music and I thought there's something special about these people I, I really like them and apparently Graham was a big Smiths fan I, I think Damon was too and so they basically said okay we'll give Stephen Street a trial. Let's, let's do a session so I went into the studio with them and we recorded There's No Other Way and that was the start of a very long and fruitful relationship, basically. There's no other way, there's no other way
3: All that you can do There's no other way, there's no other way All that you can do
2: Those records are, are so extraordinary, those early Blur records. And I go back and forth. I can't ever decide whether Park Life, which, of course, was the big breakthrough, or Modern Life is Rubbish are most brilliant. I think I would have to take both of them to the desert island (laughs) if I was going. Um, That's very kind of you. But, you know, they had this sort of 60s sense about them in the way that Pink Floyd grew by leaps and bounds from album to album in the early years or the Beatles, you know. And there was this incredible growth from that first Blur album to Modern Life to Park Life. What would take other bands five years, they seem to be doing in six months.
4: Yeah, I mean uh, they were incredibly talented. I mean, when people talk to me about The Smiths and, and Blur and, and acts that I've worked with, for me, my favorite, just because they were such lovely people to work with, is, is Blur. Because I mean, Damon was so driven as a character, I and mean, as you can see now, he's you know he just doesn't stop working. And Graham Coxon is, is simply the most fascinating guitar player. he's absolutely brilliant to work with in the
3: studio. What do you think
1: Well, it's interesting to me. I, I'm with Jim. I think Modern Life is Rubbish is an underrated masterpiece. I don't think it was perceived that way, certainly in America. I don't know what the re- reaction was like in England, Stephen, but... It was quite
4: slight, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but, it, but it was the stepping stone that was necessary to take to get towards what became the Park Life album. Mm-hmm. But actually what we were doing was something that was so different to anything else that was out there at the time. You know, the grunge thing was really, really big at that time. And I think Damon was just looking around to find something... That he really truly believed in. And, and, and it took this very kind of English angle, as it were, which obviously might have meant that when it comes to selling over in the States and so on and other parts of the world, it's going to put us at a bit of a disadvantage. But it had to be, I think there had to be a bit of a searching for one's roots, as it were, and kind of growing from
2: there again. You're listening to Sound Opinions and our guest, record producer Stephen Street. Stephen Blur followed up Modern Life is Rubbish with Park Life in 1994. That album produced the band's biggest US hit, Girls and Boys. What was it like the first time you heard that song?
4: Well, you know, we'd been in the studio for a couple of weeks or so doing some of the earlier songs that had been written for the album. And at that time, what Blur had to do, they had to demo songs, give them to Food Records. And in Food Records would say, OK, you can do that one, that one, and that one with Stephen. And, they, you know, they'd give them the necessary budget to go in the studio with myself and record those songs. And then Damon placed me this very basic demo of um, girls and boys. And my, my ears just pricked up. I said, look, we've got to do this. This is great. And I said, but for me, let's do it as a 120 BPM disco record. You know, let's make it, Yeah, you know, it's like, because at that time, you had know, the house stuff that was really fast, 130 BPM, whatever, plus, oh had yeah, that all sloping Manchester kind of hip-hoppy type beat around mm. about the 100 mark. And I said, you know, let's just let's do this kind of bum-dub, 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 you know, kind of disco. Instead of getting Dave to go in and just play, we just sequenced up the very basic kind of bass drum snare, hi-hat pattern and then got Alex and Graham to play on top of it. And as soon as those two started playing on top of it, it's like, whoa, this still sounds fantastic, you know? And then the following day, I'm on the phone to Andy Ross, one of the A&R people at Food, and he's kind of asking me how the session's going. And I said, well, it's going great. Listen, you've got to hear this new song we've done called Girls and Boys. And there's this slight kind of, Uh, well, we haven't asked you to produce that one. I said, well, (laughs) please, believe me, when you come in and you hear it, I'm sure it's going to be a top ten hit. And thank God Touchwood has proved to be right.
3: (laughs)
1: That was a heady time between Park Life in uh, 94 and then the follow-up The Great Escape. You had these two quintessential Britpop records. Of course, the, the rivalry with Oasis, which was like, I think the enemy had to write about that every week. It was a, it was a requirement in England. <laughs> what was your take on that whole rivalry? Was it manufactured or was it a real thing? No, it
4: was genuine. And
1: at first it was very friendly. I think it was a bit like the Beatles Beatles and the Stones all
4: over again. You know, dare I put those bands in that same kind of circle. But I appreciated Oasis. Oasis. I thought their first album was a cracking record. But I think Liam being Liam and and, and Noel being as he is, although he's not quite as outspoken as Liam, he's still got a bit of a sharp tongue when he wants. And I think a few things started to be said that were a little bit below the belt, as it were. So (laughs) then it did start becoming a little bit more personal. But, you know, at first, you know, I think it's great to have um, a a bit of rivalry. I think that's what Spurs bands on, you know.
2: In between Park Life and The Great Escape, you worked on the first Cranberries album. And I'd read a a quote that you said where that that year, that Park Life spent on the charts a year and Cranberries' uh, first album spent a year was probably the high point of your career.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was the kind of things that you just don't really expect. I mean, in the 80s, the only records that did those kind of things were albums by Tina Turner and Phil Collins and that kind of thing, you know. And all of a sudden, records made by a little old me were suddenly spending a year in the chart. And I was just like, this is something else, you know. It was just, it was just, it was exciting. But, you know, the Cranberries record nearly got dismissed as, you know. I I mean, I don't know if you know the history of that, but that record nearly kind of disappeared without trace. It was only because of, I think someone over on, on your side of the Atlantic kind of liked the, the, the video they'd done for Linga and gave it heavy rotation on, on all that alternative nation.
1: Your returned to work with Blur on The Great Escape in 95 and then their self-titled release in 97, which I don't think anyone saw coming. You know, it produced that big hit song too, but that was a big shift in sound for a lot of the fans. So what happened in that period where their sound changed the way it did?
4: Well, there was a reappraisal of everything. I mean, I just, I'm just grateful that as well as reappraising their approach to everything, they didn't change the producer because they could have at that, <laughs> at that stage. Mm. But... um it was obvious that Graham wasn't very happy. They'd been dragging themselves around the world, you know, touring for, for many, many years, and, and they think they just needed some time out. And Damon wanted to do something different, so he was already writing songs a little bit more in the first person for this record. And the idea was, I always remember him coming for a ride with me in my car, and him being in a cassette, and me putting it in the car and listening to it. These were his basic demos for the album. And it was like... What we're going to do here, we're going to strip everything back down. It's just going to be the band, no brass sections, no backing singers, and perhaps you know let Graham have a little bit more kind of freedom to you know do what he wanted it to do, and, and it not be so hi-fi, you know, to try and make it a little bit more lo fi Because you know, at that time, I think the band were very much into bands like Pavement, and Graham had a huge knowledge of all this kind of um, kind of garage band stuff from the US, and so it was a case of like let's just try and reappraise it. And it was a magic session it was a wonderful session and for me it's still my personally it's my favorite album.
3: and when she lets me slip away, she me
2: Well, do you have any insight into whether we'll ever see Damon and Graham put Blur back together? Is there a better chance or worse chance than Morrissey and, and Johnny Marr?
4: I personally think there's a better chance, but I think it will be on Damon's terms as fitting. You know, I don't think that Damon will, will drop everything else that he's doing just to do Blur on its own. I think Damon's too much of a... Uh, well, he just, he's just just loves working, doesn't he? Does just, just doesn't stop. So, um, as you know, they did a little single this year in yep. this country. I don't know if you heard it over there. Done for the Independent Records Day. Mm-hmm. There was a one-off track they recorded. And so, um, I'm I'm pretty certain that in their own time, they will find times to kind of go in the studio together and, and make something. Whether it will be ever like the, the touring and recording... Machine that they were before, I kind of doubt very much. But I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, they do a little bit more in the future.
1: We've been talking to producer Stephen Street about his work on some key British pop albums. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions.
4: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll put them on the air. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or connect to us on Facebook and Twitter. Jim and I will be back with a review of the new album by pop provocateur M.I.A., After a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Seven Sound Opinions. That is MIA with a track from her third studio album, Maya, called Born Free. That track in particular attracted a lot of notice in the last few months. There was a very controversial video that went viral where basically she showed a bunch of young kids, redheaded kids, being rounded up and then shot. Pretty explicit, pretty shocking, quite a way to usher in her third studio record. MIA's been around since 2005, a couple of highly acclaimed records that went mainstream. Uh, When one of the songs, Paper Planes, from her second record ended up in a couple of big movies, Pineapple Express and Slumdog Millionaire, and then was used as the basis for the TI, Jay-Z hit, Swagga Like Us. So suddenly MIA found herself at a new level of mainstream acceptance. She had been this underground darling. For those first couple of records and now had become a mainstream success as well
2: singing at the Grammys
1: while just about to give birth that's true and now for the first time a little bit of a backlash starting to sink in that video I just talked about got some uh, negative reaction because of its shocking content and there was a scathing profile in the New York Times Sunday magazine in which the writer Lynn Hirschberg pointed out some inconsistencies between MIA's Third World stance, her sort of chaotic, anarchic, political views, and her lifestyle. I mean, she's about to get married to an heir of the Seagram's fortune. You know, she's living a pretty high-level cushy existence right now, and yet here she is still singing about these these rebel causes on her record. So clearly there are some contradictions there. Let's see if M.I.A. addresses them in her new album Maya. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first, Love A Lot, from M.I.A. on Sound Opinions.
5: me like I check you, if they kick you, then I back you. Say something new, say something cool. Give you my time, but I ain't no fool. I cut, I cut, I break up a, a jaw. Every, every time, someone step to my toes. I fight the ones that fight me. I really love a lot. 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 But I fight the ones that fight me. But I fight the ones that fight me.
3: Fight me,
5: but, me. but I fight But I fight by But I fight it. But I fight But i fight the ones that fight me Who's in town? In them da like me, minna like them Da hoo, Jin Tao Instead teman. of them I got a new fan gem
2: that is Love A Lot by M.I.A. from her third album, Maya, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, contradictions, does she address them on the new album? I think she does. In that song, XXXO, she says right there, you want me to be somebody who I'm really not. Mm-hmm. When I talked to her in 2005, She said to me, I'm political, but I don't want to be preachy. I'm just telling it as I see it as an everyday person. Now, she's gone to Hollywood. She's going to marry one of the richest men in the world. She's famous enough to get an endless piece in the New York Times Sunday magazine. Mm -hmm. But she's still just telling it as she sees it. I think the people who lauded her as the next big thing, you know, a flawless artist, were as wrong as Hirschberg, who did a hatchet job worthy of the one she did on, on Courtney Love fifteen twenty years ago. The truth is in the middle. When she's on, she's great, and half the tracks on all three albums have been kind of disappointing. I like that she's really noisy here, that we have this weird mix of Bollywood grooves and reggae and ministry-like Jackhammer rhythms and nasty guitar. There are half a dozen tracks here that are great. We rate things on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I honestly am torn between a burn it and a buy it, but you know, just because Hirschberg hated her, I'm going to give it a buy.
1: <laughs> the best moments here
2: are worth your hearing.
1: Well, I have to say I was a big fan of Aryalar and Kala her first two records, and not for the reasons that some other critics were. They were entranced with her heritage, the fact that you know she had grown up in Sri Lanka in this war-torn country and was singing about third-world issues. I was more entranced by the way she was taking world music out of that little ghetto that people love to consign it to and sort of making it a true world sound that all cultures could appreciate those records were just a joy to listen to what I see here with Maya clearly she is in a new place and she's addressing some of those contradictions. That's all well and good, but it's, a, it's an awkward balancing act. I think she's become more extreme. As he said, there's more violence, more harsh sounds on this record than ever before. She's working with the same crew of cutting-edge producers, people like Blackstar, Diplo, Rusko, Switch. These guys know how to make those harsh beats really well. But th- those pop songs really aren't very convincing. Uh, she can't sing. She's not much of a singer. Just
5: remember what you know good
1: To in, in ballad mode, it's pretty snoozy. Yeah. Those great joyous rhythms of the earlier records have been muted somewhat. I don't really hear any of that great electro-pop dance music that she was making on those first two records. It's either very extreme, noisy, or very extreme, poppy. I don't think she quite found that perfect middle ground, so I'm going to give it a burn-it.
2: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
3: Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
1: As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pick a track we cannot
2: live without. And this week, it is Jim DeRigatis' turn. Thank you, Greg. All that talk about Blur, as well as the talk about M.I.A., got me thinking about a band that had some connections to both. Elastica, of course, was led by Justine Frischman. And for a period in the 90s, Justine and Damon Albarn of Blur were the it couple of the decade. You know, I'm talking like Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful were to the 60s what Damon and Justine were to the 90s in the UK. Also, MIA was a huge fan of Peaches and I think traveled around a bit when Peaches and Elastica toured and was inspired by both of those women to go out and do her own thing. Elastica, I got to say, is probably number one on my list of the great, should have been bigger bands of the 90s. They exploded with that first self-titled album in 1995, were huge in the UK, were derided almost as quickly as they were built up for ripping off a lot of wire songs, which, you know, in my book is never a bad (laughs) thing to do. You know, Justine was an amazingly intelligent, smart funny front woman Donna Matthews her guitarist partner was a great songwriter delivered those hooks on the first album and to some degree on the second which we had to wait for for a long time The Menace in 2000 they were unstoppable and then they disappeared. There were drug problems. There were personal problems. Donna Matthews wound up as a, a minister in the UK. And Justine disappeared for years. Until recently, there were a couple of articles. She, she had moved to the U.S., went to visual arts school, and is now married and painting. But man, what a front woman. I'm talking like on level of P.J. Harvey and Courtney Love when Elastica was on. So here, keeping with the Britpop theme of some of this show, is Elastica from album number one, the immortal song... Vaseline on Sound Opinions.
3: Vaseline When you're black and blue Vaseline When you're stuck like glue Give me some When you're stuck like glue If you'd like to woo
2: That's Elastica with Vaseline, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very excited to have an interview with Stephen Malkmus of Pavement. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by our ace team of Jason Saldana, who, if he's one of the artists Stephen Street worked with, he's Damon Albarn. And Robin Lynn, who would be the Morrissey, I have to say. We have a new intern, Julia Mullen-Gordon. She's the Dolores O'Reardon. And then there's our executive producer, Tori Southside-Malatea. I think he's kind of the Pete Daugherty.
3: <laughs>
1: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. messages. Hi guys, my name is Ty from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I liked your segment on the roots, been a long time follower the roots. Just before they had a record deal when they went on the square roots, uh bought about every album they have and I think you guys did them uh just especially that Black thought mentioning him as, you know, one of the top lyricists in hip hop. And I think any anyone who is uh into hip hop would, would definitely have to categorize him you know, you couldn't make a list without putting him in the uh, at least the top 10. So I just wanted to say a great show. Thank you for the segment, and uh, keep up the good work. I'm sick, sick of waiting in vain, tired of playing the game, thinking of making a change, finally breaking the chains. Every phase, every happening crazy, when it's set and
2: done, my head is right back in the haze. I'm ready for the next chapter and page to start acting my age and pawn ways with Black folk.
1: Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Paul from Chicago. And I just finished listening up to
2: your Off the Rails show, which was great. And especially Greg's section on Metallica, who absolutely deserve it. But I was surprised, Mr. Cott, to hear you slag off Load and Reload, but not Saint Anger from 2003 and easily the worst album of the 2000s. I mean, there's just no excuse for taking three years and just an appalling amount of money to make this kind of trash. I mean, it's got terrible production. It's sloppy instead of raw. The lyrics are embarrassing coming from 30-somethings. They'd be embarrassing coming from a 15-year-old, but they're embarrassing and pathetic coming from these guys. Shoot me again, I ain't dead yet. Oh,
3: shoot me again, I ain't dead
2: It's an insult to anyone who ever liked those guys, even before they started suing their own fans. Anyway, love the show. Thank you.
3: Hi, it's Mary from Chicago. Would you say that you're off the rail because you don't act and sound and write and walk and talk exactly like you did 25 years ago? If you want new and exciting, then listen to new and exciting bands. To keep expecting somebody to keep repeating themselves for three decades is not very professional of a music critic, I would say. And uh, it's human nature to change. And if you don't like the change, well, you like the way
1: they were, you don't like the way they are now.
0: Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Kate from Seattle. I uh, just want to say I love, love, love your show. I was excited when you announced that you were going to do a off-the-rails show. And I just knew that Chris Cornell would be featured, and I couldn't agree more. I moved to Seattle uh, over 15 years ago because of my love for grunge and my need to see quality live music any day of the week. And Soundgarden was, uh, or is, definitely my number one band in that genre. So I was devastated when they broke up in the mid-90s and I was horrified when I heard that Timbaland collaboration and yeah, couldn't agree with you more on that one. However, I would hold off on giving the Soundgarden tour this summer uh, a thumbs down I saw them in April and it was unbelievable I actually cried tears of joy it just felt like time stood still and they hadn't broken up and it was like the early 90s, all over again. I'm actually just getting teary-eyed again thinking about it because it was so phenomenal. So I can only imagine that their shows this summer will be that great. Anyway, thanks for your
3: great shows. Bye.
2: No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.